0: Open your Bibles, if you will, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John is possibly the most well known book in the whole Bible. It's been called God's love letter to the world. Undoubtedly, the most memorized verse in the Bible. Verse which many children memorize before they could even go to school is John three sixteen, a summary of the good news of this book. Millions of copies of the Gospel of John, bound separately just as a little booklet, have been distributed in virtually every language in the world to millions and millions of people by their Christian friends in hopes that they might introduce them to Jesus, the Savior. And in fact, I suspect more people have come to know the Savior through the words of this gospel than any other portion of Scripture. Still, this gospel is not just an evangelistic tool. Its promises are some of the sweetest words that we might ever hear in time of need. Great, great promises. I am the resurrection and the life. What we need to hear in time of grief. He who believes in me will never die. Promises like, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I promise I will come again and receive you to myself. Great promises. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said. Peace I give to you, not as a world gives. My peace, great promises. Not just evangelism. This book is about the promises of God. This book is about the discourses of Jesus. In all of the Gospels, here we have some of the greatest, the explanations, the teaching of Jesus. What it is he's doing, what these things mean, what his plans are. Indeed, this Gospel is the most self-consciously theological book of all of the four Gospels, the others tend to be a chronological listing of events, but or a thematic listing of events, but here is a theological treatise, a, a book that presents an argument to us concerning the Savior. Well, that theological nature of this book has, in fact, been um, the cause of it being greatly maligned in the last century as if the gospel, as if the apostle John, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, was somehow incapable of writing a theological presentation of the life of Christ without uh, distorting history. Virtually everything about this gospel has been denied in the last hundred years. It's certainly been denied that John ever wrote it. It's been denied that it was an eyewitness account at all. It's been said that it was written two or three hundred years later, things made up by the church. The historical uh, uh, reliability of it's been denied. You can't trust these things. Uh, If they happen in the Gospel of John, well, we know that's not history. That's just fictionalized uh, theology or something. The Gospel of John's been greatly maligned. But it has stood the test of time. Archaeological discoveries, including the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, the discovery of some fragments of of manuscripts that are hundreds of years older than any we had before have caused even the most critical scholars to have to admit that in this gospel we have indeed an eyewitness account written by one of the twelve apostles who lived in the time and place of the Savior. This gospel is such a key book in the Bible then Martin Luther wrote of it, this is the unique, tender, genuine chief gospel. He goes on to say, should a tyrant succeed in destroying all of the holy scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle of Romans and the gospel of John should remain? Christianity would be saved. It's with trembling joy and immeasurable delight that I open to you this morning the first words of this precious, precious book in which we will pursue our resolve. I want to know Jesus. Let me read it, chapter one, verse one and two. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. These 24 words in these first two verses, are unfathomable. I admit, but if I could just suggest three lines of thinking that things that I know for sure that they teach us. We may go on and learn other things later, but three things that they teach us. The first is this: Jesus lived in eternity with God. Jesus lived in eternity. With God, You know, in our time, people are becoming fascinated with uh, speculation about previous lives. And yet it's all pure speculation without a shred of evidence. There seems to be a longing among modern people like us, who've seen so much change so fast. There seems to be a longing for something or someone who has endured for centuries, stood the test of time, and can give to us the wisdom of the ages. Here is the reality for which the New Agers seek in vain. Jesus lived in eternity with God. We see this in the opening words of this gospel where it says, in the beginning, in the beginning. Alexander McLaren, the great Baptist scholar of the last century said of of, of these words. The other gospels begin with Bethlehem. John begins with the bosom of the father. Luke dates his narrative by Roman emperors and Jewish high priests. John dates his. In the beginning, Matthew and Luke take us to the cradle and the manger, Mark to prophecies of old, but John takes us back into the mists of eternity. You see, when we think back in history, what happened yesterday, the day before, the year, the century, the millennium before, when we get back to the beginning of the universe, the moment of creation, that's just out as far as our minds will go. It's hard for us to even conceive a God who was before that, who was even before that. But when we have reached the limits of our ability to conceptualize a starting point, when we get to the limits of what we can even do, there we already find the Savior he was with God in the beginning Jesus lived in eternity with God we also see that this unfathomable, unfathomable truth is suggested in another way Is suggested in the verb, the way the verb is used here. In these two verses, the verb to be is used four times. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Same verb, exactly, same form, four times. Now the significance of that doesn't stand out to us at all. We read it and say, okay, yeah, The beginning was a word. But it would have stood out to someone who understood the language in which John wrote this. John wrote this in Greek, not English. The tense of that verb in the Greek is called the imperfect tense was for us is the past tense of is, is today was yesterday. In the Greek, it's called the imperfect tense, that word that's used. Dana and Manti, the standard book of Greek grammar, say that in Greek, it's different than English. In Greek, both the time... Verbs express both the time of the action and the kind of action it is. Now, in English, that's not true. In English, we basically have in verbs the time of the action. It happened yesterday, in the past, today, in the present, sometime in the future, time. But in Greek, Dane and Manty explain, I quote here, time, past, present, future, time is but a minor consideration in the Greek tenses. The important element of tense, verb tense in Greek, is the kind of action." So what kind of action is an imperfect tense? Again, I quote the experts. Continuous action in past time is denoted by the imperfect tense. They say, well, I don't know much about grammar anyway. What does, what does this mean? Well, let me explain. In other words, John is saying Go back as far as you can conceive of. Go back to the beginning of the world. Go further than that. Go back a thousand years before the beginning of the world. Go back a million years before that. Go back as far as your brain can handle to whatever is the limit. And there, in the beginning, already continuously existing, in perfect tense, was the word. There, the Word was already continuously existing with God. And the Word was already continuously existing as God. He was already continuously existing in the beginning with God. As the great church father Athanasius said, when this doctrine of Christ was being fought out in the early centuries of the church he said and listen closely there never was when he was not there never was when he was not Jesus lived in eternity with God as we progress through the book we'll find that this was indeed Jesus own claim. Jesus said, before Abraham was. Abraham was born 2,000 years before Jesus. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. Eternally, the present tense. Continuously existing before Abraham. Jesus lived in eternity with God. Oh, this morning, as our souls long for roots, for something, for someone who has not been shaken and changed and ruined and distorted by time, for someone who speaks with the wisdom of antiquity and has the perspective of all of history. This morning I point you to Jesus who was and is and is to come. He always lived in eternity with God. Second truth we learn from these first two verses is this, that Jesus dwells in perfect unity with God. Jesus dwells in perfect unity with God. These days as life becomes increasingly harried and disoriented, we find ourselves longing for intimacy longing for some kind of perfect relationship with another person. Well, here in this first verse, the Holy Spirit informs us that Jesus has always known such perfect relationship with the Father. He's the expert. Jesus dwells in perfect unity with God. This, I believe, is the impact of all of the discussion Given to this title which Jesus has given in this first words of this gospel. In the beginning was the word. The Greek word is logos. You may have heard that. It's the word that we pronounce or that we translate word. The logos. A lot's been written about this word, stuff that you and I might have difficulty understanding. You see, logos was a very familiar concept in ancient Greek philosophy. It was discussed by Plato and Socrates and the Stoics and the host of other philosophers. By the term logos, the Greeks meant the whole realm of thought or reason that's behind all that you see and everything that happens. Logos was this concept that there must be a controlling reason or controlling word, some controlling principle of order, which kept the universe from being just chaos and random occurrences. He spoke of the logos, this reason behind everything. Now John undoubtedly knew the Greek concepts of logos. They went went on all around him. I'm sure he understood something about this. But his mind had not been formed by Greek philosophy. His mind had been formed by Old Testament scriptures, by Hebrew thinking. But in the Old Testament scripture there's also this concept of the logos, the word, although in Hebrew the word is mimrah, the word. Except in Hebrew the concept is much more concrete and it's much more personally tied to God himself. So that we read in the Old Testament, by the word of God the heavens were made. Or by the word of God his people were delivered. Or by the word of God, Uh, his wrath came on his enemies or by the word of God the prophets knew and spoke. So what John does here in the beginning of his gospel is as he writes in the midst of the first century Greek kind of thinking and a Hebrew kind of audience he takes a concept that was common to everyone and he starts there where everyone is this recognition that on the Greeks part that there's some kind of controlling Reason, order behind everything. And, 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 and the, the concept on the Hebrew part that says that the word of God is behind all of these things. And John says then that this word is Jesus. That's what we're talking about. Jesus Christ is the wisdom, the reason, the power, the intelligence that exists in unity with God as an expression of God from the beginning. This logos, which everyone is talking about, Jesus says. It's Jesus you're seeking. Or John says, it's Jesus you're seeking. You're talking about, now what is the controlling word? John says, it's Jesus. And the Hebrew says, what is the word of God? How does the word, how does God speak and say, let there be light in the light? And and, and John says, it's Jesus. He is the logos. He is the word of who existed with the Father from the beginning. John makes the same point in other ways, using this little word, with, which has a lot of Greek grammar to go with it, which I don't understand all of it, but in fact, the word means toward. The word is toward God. Or or, or one scholar said it means face-to-face. In the beginning was the word, and the word was face-to-face with God. When it's used in the sense it's talking about a person with a person. Usually in, in, in a fairly intimate relationship. The word was face to face. Person to person with God. In other words John is telling us here. That this powerful reasonable intelligent. Lagos word of God. Can be described both as distinct from God and yet at the same time in perfect unity with God. This word is not a concept. It's a person in relationship, a forever perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus dwells in perfect unity with the Father. The unity is so close, To Just talk about it on the most simple, obvious level. The unity is as close as the word you speak reflects the thought in your mind. They can be distinguished, but they're part of the same thing. This morning, as your soul thirsts for intimacy, as we look for relationship, which seems to remain so elusive in this fallen, broken world, I point you to the Lord Jesus Christ, who as the eternal word, continually dwelt in perfect relationship with his Father from all eternity. He's the expert on relationships. That's the perfect intimacy that our hearts are longing for. He who's called the word of God, who is with God in perfect intimacy, is able to show it to us. And to affect it in our lives. In fact, it's interesting as we go on through the book, we get to chapter 17, we find Jesus praying for us. And What does he pray for? Father, he says, I pray for those who will believe in me that all of them may be one. Just as you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus prays that the perfect relationship he knows with his father will be our relationship with him and with one another and with his father. Jesus dwells in perfect unity with God. He's the expert on relationships. First of all, Jesus lived in eternity with God. Secondly, Jesus dwelt in perfect relationship with God. And the third thing, and then we'll close. Jesus is God. As John writes this gospel, as anyone writes any biography, one question controls the whole effort. Who is this person? The answer to that question will determine the person's place in history. It will determine the authority with which that person speaks. It will determine the response which people ought to give to that person's life and words. So who is this Jesus that John writes on? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, that's who. If ever the Jehovah's Witnesses have knocked on your door, peddling their views, which include some old ancient heresies, you may have heard them say, in fact they may have taken you to their own Bible, what they call the New World Translation, they've done their own translation to make it fit what they believe, and they may have taken you if you've said, I believe Jesus is God, they may have taken you to their Bible and had you read here and say, see it says that the word was a God but not God Almighty. Their argument is that the fact that John leaves out the little word the, doesn't say the word was the God, but says the word was God. That therefore they say you should supply the word a, the word Jesus is a God. But nobody could be God Almighty, that's their argument. Well, let's clear it up. What about it? Is that true? The New Testament has a perfectly good word for divine. If John just wants to attribute some kind of divinity to Jesus, saying he's a God, he's godlike, there's a perfectly good Greek word for that. It's the word uh, theos divine. John avoids that word. He knows the word, but he doesn't use that word. You see, he is intentionally making the point that there is no distinction in essence between God and the word. The word was God. He says it straight out. The word was God. But he not only does not use that lesser word, which would say something less, but Actually, John, by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, avoids another terrible error here the error of identifying the Word and God so much that there's no distinction. You see, though the Word, the Son, Jesus, is truly God, it would not be accurate to say that the Word makes up the whole Godhead. What about the Father? What about the Holy Spirit? If John had said the word was the God, well, certainly the essential essence would have been maintained, but the distinctive persons of the Godhead would have been completely obliterated. Oh, but the Holy Spirit carries John along with such detail, even to whether you put in or take off or omit the word the so that as the church struggles through this doctrine for hundreds of years, trying to pin down exactly who is this Jesus, that it's clear that this Jesus is God. He shares in the essential essence of the Godhead. But the Godhead is still three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is is God. I can say to you with confidence, that's what the text says. Jesus is God. Not Jesus is God-like or, or, or Jesus has divine characteristics. Jesus is God. But at the same time, we're not saying God equals Jesus, Jesus equals God, two names for the same thing. No, that's not what this truth teaches. Jesus the Word, the Son is God in all of His fullness. But the Father and the Spirit are also God in all of His fullness. There are three persons in the one Godhead, not three gods, one God, but three distinct persons, the mystery of the Trinity. One and only one incomprehensible God. Existing in three persons of the same essence, perfect unity. Not three gods, one God. This is not a doctrine that the church dreamed up hundreds of years after Jesus. This indeed is what Jesus said of himself. He said, and this is about as blunt a statement as you can make, he said, I and the Father are one. He says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whereas John records in verse 18, we'll get to no one has ever seen God but God the one and only. No one has ever seen God but God the one and only, who is at the right, at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus is God. Throughout all the epistles, wherever Jesus went, the same question was raised: who is this? Who is this man who speaks and calms the wind and the waves? They obey him. Who is this man who makes the blind man see? Who makes the lame walk? Who is this man who has authority over demons and casts them out and raises up the broken and lifts the dead to new life? Who is this one? Same question confronts you and me this morning. What do you think of Jesus? Who is he? If he's just the leader of one of the world's great religions, you can take him or leave him, it doesn't matter. Obviously secular people do about as well in the world as religious people, don't they? If he's just a religious leader, it doesn't matter. But in fact, as we read the Gospels, nobody came to that conclusion, just another religious leader. Everyone who saw him and heard him, saw what he did, understood that he claimed to be nothing less than God come in human flesh. Now, some people hated him for that. They said, that's blasphemy. We will not have that. In other words, God himself can't do that if he wants to. I reject that, they said, and they hung him on a cross. Didn't matter. God raised him from the dead. He's still alive today. But others heard that it was not what they expected to hear. But they saw the evidence that Jesus presented, that John records for us, and they believed what he said. They may have doubted previously, like Thomas, who doubted, said, "I'm not going to believe that. No way am I going to believe." But when he saw Jesus alive again from the dead, he fell at his feet and said, My Lord, and what? My God. And those who heard and saw and believed went out and told the world in a generation about this one. So how long will we vacillate between opinions? If Jesus is not who he says he is, God come in the flesh, don't waste another day on him. But if he is, if as our text clearly says, he lived already in eternity with God, he dwells in perfect relationship with the Father, He is God. Oh, if that's true, then it demands my time, my wealth, my soul, my mind, my strength, everything that I might know and serve him. Because to know him, is eternal life Amen Father I pray that as we think on these things these simple words these first two verses Lord we could speak volumes about them but we can't get any more profound than those words are and yet they cause us to see that we don't know you near as well as we thought we did Father, as we reflect on these things, help us to feel the weight of them. Deliver us, Lord, from this forever indecision, this ongoing wait-and-see attitude that we tend to have that's afraid to reject Jesus but doesn't really deal with you as if you are my Lord and my God. Oh, Father, as we reflect on these things, may we feel the weight of the demands it puts on us, the weight of the beautiful, wonderful promises that come to us, the weight, Lord, of this reality. I pray that whatever it takes, we would worship you and serve you enlighten us, Lord, with that. Father, I cannot convince people. My words are not clever enough or persuasive enough to move anyone's mind, to show anyone the magnitude, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus. But I pray that your spirit would take these words and would drive them deep into our hearts until we understand and know you. May our lives be changed. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to worship you, in the company of your people, and to hear your word, and to think on you. Bless our fellowship together as, as we leave. May this be a day of refreshment, Lord, as our hearts are turned to you.